Thanks, Ken, Jason, Zach, Kate, worship team. Good to see you this morning. Like, like I mean that. It's good to see you. Maybe it is. I don't know. We'll see. It really is good to see you. Luke 15's will be in just a minute. And uh, so you can go ahead and turn there. Well, we'll be there for like three seconds, and then we'll be in Genesis 1, 2, and 3 for the rest of the morning. So um, if you want to go ahead and turn there, you may do that. I don't know if you've noticed um, this about church and family life, but sometimes um, there can be a struggle between family life and church life if you've been around church for any number of years, like you get busy in one and one seems to be neglected kind of thing. And so um, I've noticed that for me in my, in my own family life. There's a struggle between being busy at home and neglecting church or being too busy at church and neglecting home. Um, at Solid Rock, the last three or four years, we've been able to begin to adjust and shift ministry to where um, hopefully we are um, a complement to home life here at the church where there's, there's a, uh, an equal balance of both. And so one of the things that we do um, is we streamline things in the summer. If, you've, uh, if you were around last spring, you knew we were doing um, full-fledged men's ministry, women's ministry, um, a lot going on. And then summertime hits, and we know that's when families traveling, planning vacations, and all these things are going on. And, and we're just busy at home, so we streamline summer ministry back a little bit. We give volunteers time off. You notice the band's still out taking break and that sort of thing, and uh, kids volunteers. And we uh, then and what happens here at Solid Rock is August, we start ramping up. We start talking about the things that are going to be going on. We usually do a new members class towards the end of the summer, which is coming up starting next Sunday and, then, and the Sunday following that. Um, and then right after that, we'll hit September, men's ministry, women's ministry, fire off again, and we get off and rolling. So um, I just want to cast some vision for you to let you know why we do that that way. Um, we know there's a time to be busy in church and, and serving, and there's also a time to be busy in home. And, and so we want to try to find the balance between both. And uh, so um, in your worship guide, you're going to begin to see some announcements of some things coming on if you're new around here. Um, these, most of these things are things we do every year. Um, we've just taken a break from, and we're about to get started back up. There'll be a few new things coming up. You're going to notice a men's ministry kickoff. Uh, this is going to be different. It's actually going to be the last Wednesday of this month. Um, over in the other building, we will on a Wednesday night do a big barbecue dinner, and uh, that's right. We're not we're not hiding it. We're we're trying to we're trying to uh, bribe men into coming into ministry, and so we'll have a big barbecue dinner. Uh, this is for every man uh, who wants to come. Hopefully, you as a as an attender or member here know that you're welcome and you're you're wanted and you're needed. Um, but we want you to use this night to reach out and invite somebody who maybe you haven't invited yet, or who maybe wouldn't come to a Sunday morning. And uh, reach out to a neighbor, a coworker, a friend, a brother, a family member, and invite them to come with you to a barbecue dinner, okay? So uh, get ready for us to get, get back into full-fledged ministry starting September. We're going to ramp up to that over the next, next few weeks. All right. Um, just a word. Uh, Ken, thanks for leading us in prayer, um, either you every week or making sure somebody does that. Ken is one of our elders, and uh, I, I just want to brag on our elders for a minute um, we, we have four elders right now at Solid Rock. This year we're working on the process, actually the last two years, for what it will look like to bring on more elders, hoping to move into that next year um, and, and have that process off and running. But right now we have four elders here at the church, Ken Forsyth, Billy Warren, his wife Joe did the welcome today, and then Larry Roberts, who is out today, and then myself. And uh, I want you to know that, I'm not bragging on me, but these guys who um, all have full-time careers and jobs, 
Um, I don't know anybody who serves harder or longer than these guys. Um, I think we set a record this past week. As far as I know, as long as I've been here, it was a record. A uh, seven and a half hour long elder meeting. And all we're doing is discussing these amazing things God is doing and, and trying to discern what he wants us to do in planning uh, for the future. So it wasn't all negative conversation, dealing with issues, putting out fires. It was simply elders talking through all the amazing things that are going on in family life and the way God is restoring marriages and calling people to himself and, and leading us to grow. And, and so I'm just honored to serve with, with these guys. I want you to know it, um, that you, you, you are led by a church of, uh, or you are led by, led by a body of elders who love you deeply, love the Lord deeply, and work hard for his kingdom. Um, so there you go. They didn't pay me to say that. Okay, Luke 15, just a word. Let me read it first. We're going to be in the parable of the lost coin. So we're going to start in verse 8. I'm going to read 8, 9, and 10, and then we'll, we'll talk for a minute. So Luke 15, verse 8. Now this is the parable following the parable of the lost sheep, which Cam taught two weeks ago. Okay? So just know that in context. So he says, or. So he's coming from that parable to this one. Or, what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one, does not light a lamp, and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it. When she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And we're not going to get through it all today. So uh, let me just tell you a, a little story of something that I experienced a couple of years ago. It was three summers ago. Um, in June, there's this informal group of men from Solid Rock who go to Colorado and do this week-long camp out and just get rugged and nasty for about a week, um, let, the, let the beards grow and let the, the body odor just, uh, just go, and, uh, and we just get rugged. We do some fishing, hiking, a lot, a lot of eating, and so I got to go with them three, week, three years ago. And so um, one of the things I was looking forward to on this trip, in addition to all that, was, was hiking up to the high elevations, kind of do some backpacking. And, uh, and so I was all excited about that. And once we get there, um, I, I realized how much work it is. Just camping in general is work. And so it was three or four days before I could really even talk anybody into going up the mountain with me. And even then, I was a little bit hesitant, maybe hoping nobody would go. And I just said, oh, I'll just, just, just bow out of this one. But uh, there are two, two suckers, um, John Grubb and Brandon, Force, uh, Brandon uh, Tedaravich. Uh, they, they said, I'll go. And so uh, we didn't, weren't really equipped, prepared. We, we had backpacks, fanny packs. You know, one guy had, a, uh, had the camel back. We weren't really equipped to, to make a 2,000-foot and elevation hike, but, but nevertheless, we set out. Chad was there. He knows what I'm talking about. He, he, he stayed at camp with all the rest of the smart guys. And so Brandon, John, and I headed up the trail, um, really kind of seeing at a distance where we wanted to be, not really sure how to get there, and then hoping to find a trail back down to camp. They dropped us off kind of a ways from camp. So long story short, we head up the trail. Uh, gosh, I think three, four hours in, we finally hit that, that upper elevation, realized we're, we've climbed almost 2,000 feet in elevation, and we're not going to be able to go any higher, uh, and it's time to turn around and, and, and come back to camp. Well, along the way, there are some specific things that are engraved in my memory. I'll just talk you through a few of them. Uh, one of them, I remember one part of the trail, we were kind of coming around the side of a hill. We had jumped a small herd of elk, and we were amazed at how they could just, just climb a mountain. And so we were kind of following the human trail uh, behind these elk, and we came to a spot where the trees had fallen, and somebody had come in front of us with a chainsaw. Like, I remember distinctly, um, trees cut and moved out of the way so we could continue going up the path. Just kind of odd to find on the side of a mountain somebody had been up before. So I remember... 
getting to a spot um, where we, we hiked through snow. And, and, and so what I mean by that is there was on the mountain left a, like a four by eight patch of snow, and we went out of our way to walk through it so we could say we had hiked through snow. Um, I remember one part of the, the wilderness where it was really flat, and, uh, and the trees were so thick uh, and the brush was so thick, we were actually climbing up on fallen trees to walk and kind of navigate through this area. But the thing probably most distinctly engraved in my mind are those lookout places where we stopped and were able to turn around and look back down, back down at the journey that we had come up, and also the, that vantage point to, to kind of regain focus on the goal and then continue on to realize, well, you know, we'd, we'd, we've moved a little further north than we had expected, we've moved a little further south, and so we would kind of regain perspective up so that we could eventually come back down. And I'll never forget that moment where John and Brandon and I finally, we made it to this high point on the side of this hill, and we just sat down in the grass and just breathed, and we could see our journey up, we could see the goal where we wanted to go, and we just kind of reveled in that, in that moment. And then the long journey back down, and we get to the bottom exhausted, and we run into moose, never run into moose before, but um, it, it was really a surreal moment because we were all too tired to really react, and so we just kind of froze, and I think we were all thinking to ourselves, uh, who's fastest? Um, but, but by God's grace, the, the moose decided to go the other way, and, uh, and so then we made it back. So, but here was the point of all that. Um, there are times in life to be focused on the details of the journey, to be overwhelmed with what God is doing right now today in an unexpected moments, um, vision that's unfolding for you, plans, purpose, driving forward. And there are times to step up on the summit, to turn around and evaluate, to look behind, to look ahead, and kind of reassess where the details of today fall into the long journey that I'm on, okay? And so scripture, Jesus being this brilliant son of God teacher, does this for us often. I've, I've evaluated and, and learned something even this week that um, when we're reading the Bible, many times Jesus is teaching, his stories are filled with detail, specifics, and the parables are, are lengthy and long. I think what would be, what is good for us to do when we come across scripture like that, it's just full of detail, is to think micro level, think details in my life to think about how does this apply to my right now, today, daily living. I think there are other times where Jesus is much more brief and much more summarized and he uses these big long statements to summarize all that's going on to sort of push us back from the table for a moment to, to, to evaluate how this fits into the, 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 the macro, this meta narrative of God. And I find this true in the parables. Like, for instance, we get the parable in Matthew 13 of the sower, and we get these details of these different responses to the seeds. I, want him, I think he primarily is talking to us individually, but then just, just a few parables later, Jesus switches, and he uses one verse to tell a whole parable. The kingdom of God is like a treasure hidden in the field. When a man finds it, he, he, he buries it, he hides it, he goes home and sells all that he has and comes back and buys the field. This one verse parable, right, summarizing something really big. And so when we get to the parable of the lost coin, we find that Jesus is teaching three parables, really this kind of the same thing over and over again. The parable of the lost sheep had much more detail. It was, it was broader, and, and Cam took us into that text and, and the details of how this should play out. And then we get the parable of the lost coin, and then right after it, the parable of the prodigal son, full of detail and and lengthy, but we, in the middle we have this parable of the lost coin with just 
three verses where Jesus summarizes the same thing, but kind of pulls us out to the beginning and the end. And what I realized this week is how in three verses, Jesus can capture Genesis 1 all the way through Revelation, this unfolding beautiful story, this meta-narrative, this mega-narrative of God. So that's what we're going to do. So what looked like a real simple three-verse parable is going to take us out at least three weeks. This is part one today. We'll make it probably halfway through verse eight. So let's read verse eight again. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if you remember back to the parable of the lost sheep, that started with 100, a number of completeness, a number that was whole, and one was lost. And Cam brought up, it wasn't the fact that this was a numeric value as much as what was whole and complete had been broken and severed, and it wasn't whole and complete anymore, right? So we're getting the same numeric system here. Now it's 9 and 10 instead of 99 and 100. So a woman who had 10 coins, she loses one. Now, now what a simple phrase to describe something huge in humanity. This is going to take us back to Genesis 1 in just a moment. As you maybe turn there in your Bibles back to Genesis 1, really what Jesus has just overviewed for us is this, that there was an original wholeness to humanity. Not just numerically, but a sense that this is complete, this is right, this is good. And that from that, there's been a fracture of that wholeness. There's been a, a, a shattering of what was created good into something that's less than good. And so just with these two simple phrases, Jesus has overviewed this amazing creation of God that is good and very good, and then this following fracturing of through the fall and through sin. So we're going to go back to Genesis 1 and overcap, overview, overcap some of what Jesus is teaching here. So let's start here for, for a moment, remembering just you and I, the process of creation. God starts with light, calls it good, then he moves through the process of creating the elements of, of earth and the environment, the ecosystem, vegetation, creatures, calling it all what? Good. At every turn, he stops and he calls it good, reiterating to us that what he is doing is right. It is good. Okay? But then we get to the end of it, and, he, and once he's done with it, he calls it very good. This idea that it's finished, it's complete, it's whole, it's right. Right in function, right in purpose, right in order. We know that kind of the climax of this creation is humanity itself. And caution here. Um, I don't think, I think the caution would be this, that we don't look at ourselves as the climax of God's creation and somehow um, uh, thrust ourselves into this egocentric, self-centered idea that it's all about us. Yet, there is an element of human beings are created and set apart. Right? We, we aren't necessarily only creatures because we have this this different element. We have the ability to communicate. We have the ability to create. We have the ability to commune with. We have the ability to imagine. We have the ability to do things that creation itself can't do. So human beings set apart. But we aren't set apart without specific purpose and function. Okay, so let's look at this together. 
In verse 26, everything God's created is good. Verse 26, then God said, let us make man, this is Genesis 1, 26, let's make man in our image after our likeness. There's some beautiful singular plural going on here. It gets a little bit confusing, but, and we won't really unpack all that today, but you have this, this first of all, this beautiful purpose of mankind from the beginning. God says, I'm going to create man for this purpose, to bear our image, speaking of the plurality of the Trinity of God, to bear our image, we're going to create him in our likeness. So this is the purpose of this last piece of creation, this set-apart piece of creation is set apart specifically to bear the image of the God creator. Then the rest, the rest of that verse gives us our function and let them have, so there's, there's not just supposed to be one, there's going to be more than one man created, don't necessarily have gender yet, but we realize there's going to be more than just one. Let them have what? Dominion over the fish of the seas and over the birds of the heavens and the livestock and over all the earth, everything creeping, every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, the whole thing. So purpose of man is to bear the image of God. Function of man is to do what? To, to manage stewardship, to have dominion over. It's a ruling component over creation. Now, God calls this good. We're supposed to be managers, stewards, rulers over, decision makers over the environment that we live in, the, the earth, the natural elements, how we extract natural elements out and turn them into synthetic elements. That whole process, man is given dominion and ruling over that, and it's called good. It's not something that was fractured in the fall. There's a right way for things to go. Now, God, then specifically then in verse 27, we get a, a greater detail in our, in our purpose. Look at 27. So we've been created with purpose and function. 27, so God created man, again, what? In his own image. He says it again. In the image of God, he created him. This phrase is... List, it's, it's written twice on purpose to, to grab your attention. Say, this is the essence of it. This is the purpose of man. In the image, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So what we read from this passage, the purpose of man is to bear the image of God. And this is played out in male or, or, or manhood and womanhood. That somehow through a man and a woman, God is supposed to be reflected then he moves into the details of the function. So uh, this bearing the image of God has something to do with being man. It has something to do with being woman. Somehow in God creating this humanity, even with genders, there's, there's, a, there's a God reflecting, a God-bearing image to it. Now function, 28, he tells us how then we are to have dominion over the earth. Okay, God blessed them. That means it's a good thing. And God said to them... Be fruitful and multiply. Won't get into the details of that one. Um, I think you, you know what he's implying here, right? And this idea of reproduction, childbirth, um, inhabiting the earth was a good design. It's not the result of the fall. When you read about pain and childbearing, 
the childbearing part is part of the good that God has created. That was supposed to function that way. Man and woman are supposed to bear children so that they can multiply, fill the earth to, to carry out the function of dominion. And so he says it. So be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth. Subdue it. Have dominion over, again, that same list of things. The fish, the sea, the birds of the heavens, and over the Every living thing that moves on earth, verse 29, and God said, behold, I have given you, this is just created order, I've given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit that you should have them for food. This is what God created man to eat. He's, 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 what he's talking about here, he's alluding to this dominion function is going to include harvest. You're going to go out and you're going to pluck things off the trees and you're going to eat it. You're going to harvest it. Now, the hard part where it turns into farming comes after the fall. This is simply harvest. Adam and Eve, you're going to walk around, you're going to seek food, and I want you to eat it. That's there for you. Then he talks about, in verse 30, the same thing is true of animals. When you see animals eating grass, cows eating grass, God's saying, I designed it that way. They're supposed to harvest that and eat that. Okay? So this is what God calls good. Now, Look at verse 31, and God saw everything that he had made. So this is, the, this is God looking back, kind of taking that turnaround and looking back over all that has been created, everything that he made, and behold, pay attention, look at this, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Now, Again, the temptation is not that simply because man was added to the, to the equation is it very good. This is God looking back over the wholeness of it. The fact that it's all together, everything's in place, I'm done creating, and now it is what? Very good. He's done. Everything up to this point that has played out in purpose and in function and the way that man is supposed to, to relate is good. And so man and woman then have their purpose, they have their function, but there's already going to begin, because chapter 2 is going to overview what we just read in detail, there's already the beginnings of function of gender, different functions within man and woman in this process. But here's what we know so far, that man and woman are somehow supposed to partner to bear the image of God. Man and woman are partners in ruling over creation. Right? It takes them both to multiply and have dominion. We know that men and women partner in multiplying. It's supposed to happen that way. And then we know this, that they're to partner in the harvest of food. And that's what we have so far. We don't necessarily have any idea of in, intimate relationship, um, communion with one another. That detail is going to come later. And we don't necessarily have the specific functions of manhood and womanhood. And so here's what we, we mean when we say that. When we say manhood, we mean Everything that it means to be man and not woman. And when we say woman, we say everything that it means to be woman and not man. There's, there's, there's a whole lot of humanity that's shared by both. They're both are supposed to be, right? Peaceful and gentle and kind and loving and, and, and hospitable and all those things. Those are, those are humanity characteristics. But we're asking the question then, what does it look like to be man and not woman? What are the distinctions that are created in? Genesis 2 pulls us there. Okay, so we're going to start in verse 15 in Genesis 2. The Lord God 
is still in the creation. What happens in two, not to confuse you, is we go back to day six and we get more details. Okay? So God's taking us back to day six now. Just kind of a recap, a summary afterwards. Here's what happened on day six. Verse 15 said that the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work in it and keep it. So we're still at man. Woman hasn't been created yet. Okay? So we're in the sequence of things. And the Lord God commanded the man. Okay? So God's giving the first command. Who is he giving it to? Adam. Yeah, that's, that's in here on purpose. There's a sequence of things unfolding. And God wants us to see Adam was given the command. Here's the command. You may surely eat of every tree of the garden. That's just recapping what we've already read. You can eat all of it except for, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day you eat of it you shall surely die. Now, I'm, not, I'm not a Hebrew scholar, um, but, but I've read enough to know that literally this is the tree that bears the knowledge of good and evil or not good. That's incredibly significant, isn't it? I mean, how many times has God done something and called it good? And so up to this point, Adam doesn't have knowledge of not good. Everything he knows is what? Good. And so eating from this tree, it doesn't matter really what type of tree. Was it apple? It doesn't matter. The point is, in disobedience, Adam would be unveiled to not good. God said, as long as you don't eat from this tree, all you will ever know, Adam, is good. Don't eat of this one. As soon as you do, your eyes will be open. You will be enlightened to not good. And as a result of not good, you will experience death. Look at verse 18. <laughs> then the Lord said, it is not good that the man should be alone. So we're not complete yet. We're back on day six. God looks at the man and says, man singular is not complete, not finished. It's not the idea of, of the emotion of loneliness. Like this is not Adam crying in the garden and God comes along and says, oh, Adam, what's wrong? He's, I'm just lonely. You've been so busy. You haven't been hanging out with me. This is a singular form of being alone. God, and we'll see from the next verse that it's, God's looking and saying, man alone, male alone by himself is not complete. It's not whole. So look at what he does. He responds to man being singular and alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Gosh, this phrase could take us the rest of the morning. Okay? It's, it's this beautiful idea of two things complementing one another. Okay? And I'm, I'm using complement not with an I. Not C-O-M-P-L-I. That's a compliment. It's flattery. That's Pay somebody a compliment. I'm talking about C-O-M-P-L-E. It's like completement, compliment, fit. They correspond. Something about being male and female works together. So now they're not just buddy partners. Something about being male and being female differently comes together in, in complement. He's going to make male a compliment, something to fit with him, a, a helper in this, a, in this process of function and purpose. So what happens is they, from 19 down to 20, there's an overcap of creation. 
And, uh, and, and, and Adam is observing. He's looking at the, from the dust of the ground all the way through all the animals. He's naming them. But nothing is found that brings compliment to Adam through all this creation. Why? Because this is all right, vegetation and creatures. This is, not, this is all day five and before kind of stuff. This is all not set apart part of creation. So verse 21. So here's what God does. He caused a deep sleep to fall upon man. And while he slept, he took one of the ribs, closed up its place with the flesh. This is a beautiful visual to see that these are not two different species of creation, that they literally are the same species, even though they're going to look a lot different, male and female. So he closed up the place, 22, and the rib that the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman, brought her to the man. Then he said, or the man says this, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She's different from the giraffe. The giraffe had flesh and bones, had eyes, a nose, and a tongue. But she's different. She shares my DNA, my genetics, my flesh, my bones. We look different. She's a lot hotter than I am. But we're still of the same. We still have the same purpose, this image-bearing purpose and essence. We still have the same function. She's going to help me carry out this dominion, this multiplying. And then we get verse 24, this component of covenant relationship. 24, therefore a man, and a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they become one flesh. This is now where a mom and dad if they're raising a child, there's a certain period of time where the child holds fast to his parents. There's this, this relationship, this commitment here. And then at some point in time, the man is going to let go of, right, sever the, 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 the controlling, the leading part of this relationship from parent to child. That's going to be severed and leave and do what? Grab a hold of somebody else. Cleave. Hold fast to a woman. So you see this Generation after generation unfolding. By the way, this is the command for both the man and the woman. Don't come in for marriage counseling and saying, he's supposed to leave, but nowhere, this is implied for both. A lot of unhealthy marriages right now rolling around today because the severing hasn't happened. Not, not severing in the sense that we're not in a relationship with one another, but that parent-child part component is severed. Parents step back. For better or for worse, here you go. And a man and a woman cling, they hold fast to one another. Now, this is different from anything else that God has created. Because the only relationship components we have before this is the idea of dominion. Man is supposed to relate to his environment by having dominion over it. This is different. In this relationship, there's complement, there's partnership, there's, there's helpership involved. There's letting go of this really strong bond between parent and child to grab hold to another bond. So it's so much more than just casual partners here in creation. Man and woman are here called out to this covenant, this lifelong journey together in the process of multiplying and carrying out function here on earth. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Why? Because everything's very good. There's no shame to be felt when there's no knowledge of not good. Man, man and woman are together, completely exposed. 
and they have no knowledge of anything that is not good. It changes. Next chapter, verse 1. Chapter 3, verse 1. The serpent was more crafty than any other beast in the field and the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, so this is a conversation between the serpent, the, the, uh, the snake, Satan himself. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of the tree of the garden? Now we're going to stop right here because something else has unfolded to us that we didn't stop and acknowledge. And it's very, it's, it's, it's vague, but as you see this account unfolding, it's more and more detailed as we go along. And so what we have here then is the beginnings of, as we finish chapter 2, male leadership and female complementship or helpership being created. We're seeing a distinction in function. Who was, who was created first? Adam. Who was given the law? Adam. Who then was responsible for giving that law to the woman? Adam was. Okay? Not real detail, but we're beginning to see distinction in function emerge, male and female. And so right now we have the woman talking to the serpent. It's clear here in this conversation. And so the serpent says to her, did God actually say, you shall not eat of the tree in the garden? Now this is why I'm doing this. How does she know how to answer this question? She should know the answer of it, but how did she find out? Adam was supposed to initiate the conversation. He was supposed to teach his wife what God had said, right? So he's asking a question she's supposed to know the answer to, but not because God gave it to her, because God gave it to the man, and he was supposed to initiate a conversation with her and say, oh, by the way, we don't eat from this one. If we do, we'll be exposed to the knowledge of not good, and we will die. So the serpent's asking her, verse 2 so the woman responds to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. So she has been taught this, right? On some level, it looks like. Adam passed it on, some version of it. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. Now, wait a second. A little bit different, isn't it? Is that what God said? Okay. One of two things have happened. Either Adam translated it wrong. Men, very likely, <laughs> that's what happened. Was it enough just to not eat of it? If we, I mean, we got to set a, a stricter boundary here because that woman, she, you know, we can't trust her. And so very likely, Adam maybe added to it. Second option, still very likely, uh, woman in her anxiousness, maybe she added to it. Either way, it's changed a little. Okay? It's changed a little. The result is the same, lest you die. So that part is still correct. Verse Four, but the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil, or good and not good. Now, what we have here is um, Satan's first expression in scripture of his ability to, to spin truth. Okay? So truth has been spun very clearly. The law, the command has been exaggerated. And the, 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 the recourses, the repercussion for breaking the law has been adapted. Satan's great at that. But that's not the only thing that has happened here. As we begin to see God's 
specific function for man and woman differently. And God, and God creating man as the leader, the initiator, and woman as the, the helper, the complement, the follower. Something more significant has already began to take place even before she eats. And here it is. Who was created to take the lead on this conversation? Adam. Who was commanded by God, commissioned by God, to pass that on and teach the woman? Adam. Who was created to follow the lead of the command through Adam? Woman. Already, a different leader has stepped into the equation. Before Eve ever took a bite, two things have happened. First of all, man has left his post of leadership. This conversation, should it transpire, should transpire between the serpent and who? The man. The fall has already begun. Man has already abandoned his post, his function in creation, by not being the one there talking. And we're going to find out he's right there with her. The second part is woman has begun to follow the lead of someone other than the man, hasn't she? The fracture has begun simply in this conversation unfolding. And we see its results. Verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and she ate. Fracture began when man left his post and woman began to follow another. And the results disobedience to God. Now, there's no indication that man was off fishing somewhere and comes in late into the story. It looks very well like man was there. Look at this with me. So she took the fruit of eight of it, uh, took the fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Now who's taking... Who's taking the lead in the relationship now? The woman just took the lead in the relationship, didn't she? You see that? She's participated. Man left his post. She took the lead, and now she's turning to him to influence him, to lead him, to initiate with him something. And he eats it. Now, um, we'll get in more deeper into this conversation, but here's, like, here's my... Here's my pain right now as, as a man. I'm, I'm watching this unfold, and something within me is saying, that's not right. Like, man was there all along? What was he doing? See, sitting there passively, watching another lead his wife? Sitting there passively as his wife comes to him in the one command he was told to lead her in, and then now he's following her. And I'm reading this, and something is welling up inside of me, and, I'm, and I, I just want to scream out, Adam, what are you doing? Why aren't you stepping up and saying something here? Why are you watching the ship sink? All humanity is beginning to fracture the essence, the purpose of God creating man and woman in his image, that image is beginning to fracture, and Adam is watching it passively as it unfolds. 
Adam, what are you doing? Now they respond in verse 7, the eyes of both were opened. They knew that they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Don't over um, complex this. This is very simple. Um, this is the beginning of hiding sin. Creating shadow, creating darkness, creating a place to hide sin because of, the, because of the feeling of shame. They knew they were out of order. They knew. And so their response was, let's hide this from God. He gave us our purpose. He gave us our function. Adam has been given this beautiful compliment. He's to lead her. He's to initiate And he realizes, oh my gosh, I let somebody else lead her, and then I let her lead me. This isn't right anymore. It's not good anymore. Exactly what God told them, right? And so now they're trying to hide it. So what was created good, very good, is now what? Not good anymore, period. So when we read this parable, there's a woman who had ten coins, this perfect, this wholeness, this very good beginning, she loses one. What happens? The wholeness of it has been fractured right here in Adam and Eve. Now, this idea of leadership in man and complementship of woman just continues as we go to the response in verse 8. Then they, being the man and woman, heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves, so we know why they're hiding, right? They're trying to hide from God. They hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees in the garden, so they've covered themselves with, with loincloths, trying to hide their sin, right? And what, and what, think about that for just a minute. We time to get into all this, but they're covering up their gender, right? They're realizing they had stepped out of their gender function. They're covering it up. Now they're hiding in the trees from God, but God... Look at this. But the Lord God called to who? The man. Now, I'm going to use an illustration I got from John Piper on this issue, and I think it's very, very true. Yeah, I don't know if you know this or not, but Hallie and I, we aren't perfect in the way we treat one another um, in a lot of different ways. And so we, like you, we struggle in this relationship, man and woman, doing the things God's called us to do. And so if you could just imagine hypothetically, um, it's one of those nights. Right? We just can't get to agreement. We can't choose the right words. Everything keeps getting spun into more hurt, more disagreement, more misunderstanding. You know what I'm talking about. One of those nights, we're frustrated. We're taking a break. All of a sudden, the doorbell rings. And so Hallie goes to the door, answers the door, and just imagine, hypothetically, it's Jesus. So she opens the door. Jesus greets her. Hi, Hallie. How are you doing? Is Jason home? I'd like to speak with him. Now think about that. He steps into the house. Jason, I understand. There's been some disagreement tonight. You guys are both in sin towards one another. But I need to speak to you first. Now, it does not excuse the woman. He comes back to her in a minute, right? But who was supposed to be the leader here? The man. Now, men, you need to hear this according to God's created design. Every individual person 
owns responsibility for their own sin, right? My sin, I own it. It's mine. Hallie has hers. It's hers. She owns it before the Lord. In this equation, in this design, though, as a man, as a leader, I also bear responsibility for what happens in my household. Okay? Just because I own part of her sin doesn't mean she doesn't own it. It's not either or. It's both and. And God is coming and calling man into account here. It would be really easy, and he does. What does he do? He says, no, it was the woman who messed this thing up. God doesn't see it that way. He says, no, 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 no. Adam, you left your post. You, you left her there to have that conversation. I was uh, text messaged a question by one of our church members um, a week ago uh, about um, this idea of woman and man and leadership in the church and how things are supposed to function versus how they do. And, and I was answering this question through text message. Um, and, uh, and one of the things that I said um, was this, that um, like, like I was raised in a single parent home. My, my mom kind of raised me really for the most, most of all my, my upbringing. She functioned outside of the role God gave her because she had to. She did. There were a lot of things she did that just, women just weren't designed by God to do. Now, in the church, the same is true. So this was asked about church. What's supposed to happen in church leadership? Men, women, how does that all work out? And here's what we've seen is this, that where, where men don't lead, women are forced into leadership. Okay? Forced into a role that they weren't necessarily designed by God to, uh, to, to sit in. Okay? And so Adam is going to turn and go, it's her fault. Think about this. If the church were left into the hands Men, if we just continued what we're already doing by detaching from this role of responsibility in the church completely and we give it all to the ladies to lead, and then suppose they mess it up, God calls us into account, we can't say they're the ones who led it this way. God will say, why did you leave your post? Let's start there. Let's start with the beginning of this fracture. Man, you stepped outside of your function in creation. Sure, women can make fantastic leaders. It's amazing women in my life had, had, had amazing influences over me, even towards what I'm supposed to be as a man. It's true in the church. We see it in the first, first century church. Men, men primarily leading, but women stepping up into these fantastic leadership roles, and, and Paul admonishes them and encourages them, says, greet Phoebe. I don't know anybody who serves the church life. Greet her. She's amazing. And so this is not the fact, this is not a matter of competency or value. This is simply a matter of God-designed function. And so God calls man into account, says, hey, where are you? So Adam responds, I heard the sound of you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Then God asked this penetrating question, who told you you were naked? Who, who, who exposed you to that? What, well, how did they become aware that they were naked? They ate of the tree. This is really not a who, it's a what. What did you do to cause this? He said, who told you you're naked? He, have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, what? She did it. The woman you gave to be with me, she was supposed to help me. She gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. 
wow, really, Adam? Like, I don't know if it's um, churchy to say the word pansy, but really, Adam? I mean, what a pansy. You've been exposed. Why not step up and own it? Say, you know what, God, I stepped out of my leadership role. You gave me the command. You wanted me to initiate with her. You wanted me to lead her towards right, away from wrong. I left my post. Now, Eve, you talk. Right? She's got, she's got fault here, but man owning the first of it. I left my post. I let another lead her. Now, Eve, you tell the rest. And so then God turns to Eve. Then the Lord said to the woman, what is it that you've done? All right. And then she blames it on the serpent. And then we get this unfolding of the fracture. So here, we're going to stop for just a second. I'm only going to look a little bit more for the sake of time. And so God then unfolds the fracture first to the serpent um, and basically, he ends with this. There's going to be enmity between you, Satan, as the tempter, wrestling with the descendants of Adam and Eve. Uh, you're going to bruise their heel, just continually be there trying to distract them and, and to harm man and to kill man. And man is then through the seed of Eve, I'm actually going to crush your head one day. So yeah, you've had your way. You've had your way here with Adam and Eve. And you're going to have your way for a while. But God says to the serpent, I'm, I'm going to have the last word here. Then he turns to the woman. I want you to see this one thing that he says. So he turns to the woman in verse 16, and he says this, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. So now what was created good, that multiplying that was supposed to happen, that was supposed to be beautiful and very good, has now become painful, has created even the temptation for resentment. Right? This idea, I brought you into this world, right? When a woman says that, there's almost a flare of like resentment. I went through a lot to get you here. It's being multiplied. It's fracture from very good to not good anymore. And then he says, look at this key phrase here that we see play out today in our culture. He talks to manhood and womanhood. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. Now, people will read this passage, especially that he shall rule over you and say that man's leadership in culture and home and church is a result of the fall. There is a distinct difference between leadership and rulership. Okay? What we were describing in leading and initiating a chapter ago is not this idea of rule. And I'll show you. We'll look at one verse in the next chapter to help us understand it. Because see, we read this and it sounds like this. This is what it sounds like. It sounds like she's going to have the hots for him and he's going to be a jerk back to her. Right? This sounds like high school relationship to me. Right? I mean, it's what it sounds like. Your, des your desire will be for him. You're going to have the hots for him. You're going to chase after him. Then he's going to turn and rule over you, be a jerk to you, be oppressive to you, be abusive to you. If we look to the next chapter, chapter 4, the story of Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, there's a verse that helps us understand what happened in the fracture. Um, verse 7 is this discussion between God and Cain. He says this in verse 7. He uses the same words. Look at this with me. We'll start in, we'll start in 6. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face fallen? Verse 7. If you do well, will you not be accepted? If you, if you do good, you'll be accepted. And if you do not do well, you do not good, sin is crouching at the door. He's talking about that relationship between good and not good. You do what's good, 
Yields good. You do what's not good, right? It yields not good. Sin is, look at this. So he's talking about the relationship between sin and human beings. Sin is crouching at the door. That's the idea of a lion kind of sitting there in the darkness at the door waiting to pounce, to control its prey, to have dominion over it, to even kill its prey. That's the visual we get here. Sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you. That's not a good thing, right? This is not a, when we go back to the verse, the chapter, this is not a high school teenage relationship where a girl has the hots for him. The desire that Eve is saying, that God is saying she will have for her husband is compared to a lion crouching, crouching at the door waiting to pounce on its prey. Right? That's not a high school relationship. Look at this. So sin, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must do what? Rule over it. This is an issue of control here that God is talking about, isn't it? It's an issue of which one's going to be on top. Okay, that's, that's the way sin is described in humanity, but that's the same thing he says to the woman after the fall. Your desire will be for your husband, like a lion crouching at the door, trying to kill its prey. I could go a lot of places with that. And then there will be a response back to, to rule over. Now, in relationships so far in, in creation, we do have a rulership component. Man is supposed to rule over what? Creation, not her. This is, this is what God created good, fractured into not good. A woman from here on out will continue this like a lion trying to crouch and, and take over its prey, will try to take over. What Eve set in motion will continue generation after generation. And what, what Adam did passively will continue to play out even aggressively as he then attempts to rule over and control her. This is not the way God designed relationship to work. See, we hear leadership and we automatically go to rule. There's a difference. We hear submission and we automatically go, what? Dominion and negativity. This beautiful complement relationship God has created in leadership and helpership and, and leading and following, leading and submission, very good has been fractured here into aggressiveness, overbearingness that we see play out today, right? Man still abandoning his post, even when he's in the home, right? Even the man who chooses to stay in the home and stay married and try to maintain some sort of resemblance of family many times is still not functioning in his God-designed role, is he? He's passive, like the apple tree experience or the, the fruit tree experience, right? He's passive. He's just not saying anything. Or he's over-aggressively having dominion and ruling, controlling everything oppressively. You see this, how what was very good has been fractured in disobedience. Just, just to overcap for a minute. So here it is. Man and woman were created with, with purpose to bear the image of God, function to rule over the earth. So here's some results. Original design, man was created to take initiative, to lead. He was, he was designed to take initiative in morality, spiritual, um, spirituality, decision-making, managing creation, 
not ruling, but leading, taking initiative. Okay, as a result of the fall, leadership is distorted, and it plays out today in men in overpassiveness or overbearingness. Now, the relationship between man and the world has been fractured. Original design, God created man to be a steward, to be a manager over God's creation. And instead, now, man has turned the harvest into industry. Think about that. Everything that you do to make money stems from this. What began is, okay, I guess we won't just harvest anymore. We're going to now have to plant. Well, if I plant more than I need, I have something to bargain with and trade. It's the beginning of what we understand as capitalism or barter society, which turns into industry, which turns into machines and technology, the whole thing. So you go, whoa, is it sin then to be a farmer and sell your goods? And this is the world we now live in. It's fractured from how it was supposed to design to be. So man's relationship to the world has changed. No longer is he just a harvester. He has to wrestle with the land. By the sweat of his brow is what it says in Genesis 3. But here's the, here's the main offense, man to God. Think about that. You were designed to bear the image of God so that when I look at you, I celebrate him. Think about that. When I, when I look at you and you look at me, under the context of very good, when you look at me, you would see God and you would begin to turn glory to him and worship to him. That's what we were created to do, to walk around and reflect how good he is, how amazing he is. Now that's been fractured, and so now you and I, men specifically, we distort the image of God to our culture. It's been distorted. Some people see God as this overbearing, arbitrary God. Why? Because in mankind, they see leadership distorted into this overbearing, ruling, arbitrary leadership. Um, Women design in this positive idea of submission uh, this idea of being a helper, suitable for man, this idea of compliment, complementarianism resulted from the fall. We get women who have been thrusted or forced into leadership because man has left his post, and we hear things like this, I can do anything a man can do. We hear phrases like, I don't need a, me- a man telling me what to do. Or we hear phrases like, fine, I'll just do it myself. Now, this is the result of God's creation going the wrong way. And so we could look at that and go, well, if women would just get a different perspective and follow, men could lead. No, 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 no. God comes to man first. The reason that it's like this is because, man, don't you forget, you left your post. You forced her into that position. Now, both are wrong. Both are wrong, but don't go blame her. Woman to the world, um, think about this. Um, As a man, I understand what it is to conceive. I even understand what it is to observe childbirth, but I'll never be able to understand what it is to host life within me. That was a God-designed function of the woman for eight and a half, nine months to carry life within them. Real, living, kicking life. There's, there's image-bearing in that, Ladies. And as a result of the fall, that childbearing process, pains have been multiplied. It's not, it doesn't look the way God originally created it. Not only that, woman to God, this idea of submission now has completely been distorted to where we only hear submission as negative. We have a hard time hearing submission and thinking positive. Did you know that there is submission within the Godhead? 
Submission was designed to be a glorifying, edifying thing. Jesus submits to the Father. It's not negative. That's the way it was supposed to function. We were created in their image. And so now this resentment towards submission that we find is beginning to distort the image of who God is. So we hear Jesus submitting, to Jesus, uh, Jesus submitting to God, and we go, whoa, whoa, that shouldn't be right. What the, something's wrong here. No, this is, this is supposed to be good. And there's been a distortion. Now, we come back to then Luke 15, and we read the beginning of this parable and what Jesus is overviewing. He says, or what woman... Having ten coins, something whole and perfect and good, if she loses one. Now, next week we're going to come back and look at what she does once she loses it. She lights a lamp. She diligently goes after it, which is God coming after creation to restore it. But what you and I now have read in meta narrative and the big story now plays out in our individual lives. As I'm calling out men, I'm calling out women, there's some sense of how does this fall on me? There has to be. And our caution here then, our caution is then not to define what is very good by the culture we live in. This is where we're going to end, and we'll pick it back up next week. This is our temptation. Okay, It's happening today with homosexuality, but take that and set it aside. It happened with slavery. Because little boys and girls were born into a world where slavery was mainstream and accepted, even if they got to a certain age where they thought, well, this doesn't feel right. Man having dominion over man, right? That's, what, are they, what are they sensing there? This is not the way God designed it. They began to what? To conform to it because the whole culture was doing it. And so you and I now live in a culture of the nine, not the ten, the fractured version. And we must be very cautious that we don't let what's going on in culture define what's supposed to be very good, but we let God himself say, this is what's very good. Sin is sin, not because God is arbitrary and mean and loves to rule, Sin is sin because it's brokenness. It's outside of God's design. Whether it's slavery or homosexuality or whatever sin you want to call to the surface. Okay? It's not God being arbitrary saying, God saying, I did not design it to work this way. I must keep that in mind. So let's move into a time of prayer and, and we'll be, be ready to get out of here. Sorry for keeping you so long. Um, this was supposed to be one sermon. It's going to go three weeks and I told Cam it may go four or five weeks. We'll see. Um, to get through all this. This is huge. This is huge. Let's pray together, and as we pray, I want you to think about how this lands on you individually. Um, I hope that the men in the room are beginning to ask, you know, if God were to knock on my door, first of all, who would he find answering it? (laughs) Right? If God were to knock on my door and he was to come inside, who is he going to find on the leadership post? We need to be asking that, men. Not the distorted version we get today, Overpassiveness, overbearingness, but the God designed initiating leadership. Women, there's, there's, there's something to fall on you as well. Have you bought into the lie that submission in and of itself is just negative and bad? Have you bought into the lie that, 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 that there's no difference between men? And matter of fact, if I were in charge, it'd be better. Have you bought into that? This is not the way God designed it to function. So there needs to be a gentle falling on you right now. Do I participate in the God designed version of leadership and submission?